welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about the 1996 Romeo and Juliet, Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, or William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, often shortened to Romeo plus Juliet. We are talking about it with our great friend, Melanie Zanetti. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. I'm reading this from Wikipedia. It says that Romeo and Juliet is a 1996 romantic crime film directed, produced, and co-written by Baz Luhrmann. It is a modernized adaptation of William Shakespeare's tragedy of the same name, albeit still utilizing Shakespearean English. The film stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes in the title roles of the two teenagers who fall in love despite their being members of feuding families. Friend of the show, Melanie Zanetti, is an Australian film and television actress among many wonderful roles. Uh, Melanie portrays mom in Bluey. What? (laughs) So happy to have Melanie here talking about this movie. Hey, quickly, uh, if you're in Los Angeles or the Los Angeles area, we are having a live You Are Good event. Uh, We're having it actually on September 7th and another on September 8th. Live shows at the Zephyr Theater uh, in Melrose. Uh, It's going to be fun. We are doing it with our great friend Woody Sticks on the 7th. We are talking about Roadhouse on the 8th. We are going to talk about Single White Female. Sarah will be there, of course. And in the opening of these shows, Woody and I will tell each other about uh, folks that we learned who are in one way or another by way of their profession or interests or affinity groups, whatever, uh, who are represented by the stories told on screen in these movies. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, And if you aren't able to make it, hopefully you will be able to make it. But if you are not able to make it, maybe you'll hear uh, you'll hear the audio on the show sometime down the road. Hey, I don't know if you got it, but uh, a couple weeks back, Sarah, Sarah Marshall, who co-hosts this show, uh, was on Behind the Bastards. And then last week, our great friend, Chelsea Weber-Smith uh, was on Behind the Bastards, and this week, I am on Behind the Bastards. So if you uh, are a listener to that show, you will hear some familiar voices, and if you are not and looking for more Sarah, uh, Chelsea, or me content, you can find it on the show Behind the Bastards. Look out look out for that, where you listen to the shows. What's going on in your world? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Let us know at You Are Good Pod uh, on uh, what used to be known as Twitter. Let us know at You Are Good Pod on Instagram. Find us on Blue Sky. I'm getting better at using Blue Sky. <laughs> Finally, getting better. And uh, some of you found us over there, and that's great. Who knows where we'll be next? Who knows what social media will look like next week? But please come find us. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Did you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible? with and by your support. Thanks so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You get bonus episodes for doing so. We appreciate you. You make the whole thing possible. We couldn't make this show without you. We couldn't make this uh, part of our our job, part of our work without you. So thank you so much to everyone who supports us there. Uh, we can do this because of you. Thank you. All right, everybody, that's, uh, that's it for right now. Let's talk about Romeo plus Juliet with the great Melanie Zanetti. Hello, Sarah Marshall. (laughs) Hello, Alex Steed. Alex, have you seen any really quite violent movies lately? (laughs) (laughs) Have I seen any movies that, like, defined my entire high school existence? Oh, Encino Man? Encino Man. And we're talking about Encino Man today. We're talking about Peter DeLuise's best villain role. Um, no, no. Have you seen any movies that is just packed to the gills with the wildest casting decisions of 1996? Yes. Have you seen a movie lately where you know it's <laughs> Diane Venora, but you're like, Diane Venora is Jessica Lange. <laughs> oh, my God. I at least four times had to look at the cast online to be like, why are they not listing Jessica Lang? You're like, no, it's it's Heat, Diane Venora, the woman in Heat who played woman. Oh my gosh. Oh, what are we what did we what did we see, Sarah Marshall? What are we watching? Oh my God. We are watching possibly the most exciting movie of all time, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. Yes, very important distinction. And we're watching it 
We're watching with a community member of our show, a friend of the pod who has been so like we talked about Melanie being on this show maybe like two years ago and we've been working oh toward it for a while. Like this is one of those ones where just for whatever reason, this is how long it took. And Melanie, Melanie Zanetti, thanks for being here. Tell us about yourself. Um, thanks for having me, guys. This is such a thrill. Um, I'm an actor and a voiceover artist and a longtime listener to You Are Good and oh. You're Wrong About and all the things you guys make. Oh, my God. Thanks for being here. Yeah. If something takes two years, then it should at least be as big and bombastic as as this movie and therefore the conversation <laughs> we're going to have about it. Exactly. Absolutely. This is this is also funny in that this is our second uh, Baz Luhrmann movie that we've covered, but the first didn't make it mm. because we recorded it with Ruby. It was strictly ballroom. And I forgot to hit record on my end. <gasps> no. So this is our first Basler movie. <laughs> Which is amazing that we haven't done Moulin Rouge yet because we really specialize in girl movies. We sure do. And Moulin Rouge. I feel like Moulin Rouge is the, I don't is, is it considered the peakiest Baz Luhrmanniest Baz Luhrmann movie. I feel like it's like he's just in his shit in that one. It's number three in the Red Curtain trilogy. Mm. It's his return of the king. Yeah, it, it <laughs> is his return of the king. Exactly. Oh my god. Yeah, I, I'm stoked to do that. The first that's another that's one of the ones where I was saying earlier that I feel like his signature is to come out swinging just the hardest possible for ten minutes, and then the rest of the movie is just equilibrium or mm. sort of catch up with that motion in one way or another and that one is disorienting in the most beautiful way possible uh, melanie you brought this to us why did you select this movie uh because this is my coming of age movie and i think it was for so many people who are sort of uh, mid-80s babies coming into high school at the time this came out and i saw this when i was 12 mm. and it hit me so hard partly because of you know the beast that it is but also I'm one of six kids our viewing was highly curated um for example like we weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs because there was a cult symbolism with like the sorcerer dude and oh, Care Bears wow. there was like uh emotional manipulation so it was like <laughs> the the TV was put in the cupboard for a few years. And so I didn't have a lot of like pop culture world that I lived in. So I think when I experienced this one, it hit really hard. But I had seen Shakespeare before, about a year before I'd seen my first play, Much Ado About Nothing. And I was just like, this, whatever this word thing happening. <laughs> I want to be part of that. And then I remember sitting at the end of Romeo and Juliet. I remember so clearly I was sitting on the floor and I just had like tears running onto my shirt. And I felt like I have seen cinema. I have discovered Radiohead. My <laughs> life has changed forever. Yeah, that is, it hits you with so much in five minutes. You're like, all these feelings and Radiohead? Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think it really was the beginning of the formation of my taste. Mm. So it, there was something about the smashing together of the archaic and all this like Catholic iconography. It was like rooted in that like smashed against this very modern, frenetic storytelling that just felt so fresh and exciting. It feels like what I love about Japan, mm. that they have this like super old culture um, that they really have still present and so and held in such high regard and then smashing it with this like very high-tech new technology there's something about the, that feeling mm -hmm. of the smashing together that is very pleasing to me and of course like Leonardo DiCaprio was like painfully beautiful and revisiting it now like it's been like seven years since I've seen it it was a shock to see like what babies they were and of course <laughs> me at 12 is like he's a like sweet angelic boy and so accessible so yeah it was my taste maker and my coming of age uh film amazing 
Sarah, what's your what's your history with this movie? I was thinking about this while watching it because I specifically remember a moment because I had a giant crush on Leonardo DiCaprio starting with Titanic, which came out when I was nine for like years. But I was like very furtive and secretive and weird about it because that's what you do. And I remember being at Blockbuster with my mom and being like, well, we could rent the 60s Romeo and Juliet or we could get the 90s one. It's more modern. It's up to you. <laughs> and so I had to watch the goddamn Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> um, and then I saw this Romeo and Juliet sometime later. And I remember just like being incredibly struck by the aesthetic. And I was thinking, too, I was trying to make a list the other day of like movies that I think encapsulate really well the flavor of like specifically a 90s media, like tabloid news scandal sensation. And like To Die For is a great example the birdcage and in and out are really good at that. And this movie is also like in that vein and it's like about media in an interesting way. And like, I completely agree, Melanie, about like the idea of starting to form taste based on this movie, because like there's, it's also so maximalist in a way that feels like a little bit eighties mm. in an interesting way. It feels like, you know, also like it's just its own, genre but kind of you know different from a lot of what was going on visually at this time I feel like and yeah that it's such a revelation that you can do so much with the visuals and the kind of the editing and the mm. construction of a story that you're telling and I also like did not get a lot of the language but I it's like a movie that telegraphs what's going on to you like through the visuals in a way that's really nice especially you know I love all of the kind of low budget Derek Jacobi, BBC uh, Shakespeare adaptations, but they are really relying on you to understand what people are saying. <laughs> yes, they are. I feel like Baz and Catherine Martin, who's his um, partner and production designer, and they're sort of like, you, you don't have one without the other, really understood the size of the play. And there's an hmm. operaticness and yeah. theatricality that, you know, I think Shakespeare is really tricky to adapt to screen and, and historically has been, but I feel like there's something essential that he got about the play that worked with his style and like the freneticism about with the, the cuts and the editing and how it hits you is really mirrored in what's happening in the story, the recklessness and uh, totally where everyone's at. Right. It's a movie that feels like being a teenager. Exactly. As far as what you were saying, Sarah, about like what feels like the 90s in a big way, I feel like 95 is Natural Born Killers. This is Natural Born Killers for teens. <laughs> and then Seven, which is another movie about serial killers. Seven is 95 I, as well. Oh, I'm 95. Sure. Is it? It's like those are like three of, to me, the most like defining 90s like movies by way of both like narrative and presentation and like bigness yeah. it's funny that two are about serial killers and one is about teenage suicide and, and romance but yeah they're just so fucking big in a beautiful way Sarah before we go further hmm. for the uninitiated uh with regard to Romeo and Juliet as a text and as this movie do you want to uh do you want to take us to Verona Beach Yes. And if you don't know what happens in Romeo and Juliet, then honestly, congratulations on consuming almost no culture because it feels like 30% of media is honestly derivative of Shakespeare plots in some way or another. And congratulations on just being totally fresh. And if you need a reminder, like obvious trigger warning for like a lot of violence and teen suicide. That's kind of what this this whole movie is very deathy, as is the play, obviously. And yeah, Romeo and Juliet is a story about two teenage idiots who fall in love. <laughs> I was also like, what a week. This happens in like 96 hours. Nothing realer. Nothing realer than that. Yeah. No, it's completely true. You're like 10 years old and fall in love as hard as possible and then maybe die. Yes. And it's kind of wild that it's, it's heralded as this like the greatest love story. I'm like, is it though? I know. Or is it like 
a cautionary tale of not making life and death decisions before your frontal lobe is developed. I texted Sarah and was like, you know, when you first encounter this text, in this case, in this movie form uh, for me, when you first encounter it, you're like, oh, like teens in love. <laughs> I get it. And then I watch it now and it was like, families are nuts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We drive each other to death. <laughs> yeah. And so this movie is about also this play. What? You know what I mean? This movie is about two households, each alike in dignity and fair Verona, where we lay our scene. And that's as far as I can go. You're welcome. And so in this, we open with a newscaster on TV doing our our opening monologue, which I love. And then we have this, Alex, as you pointed out, this unbelievably frenetic opening, which actually <laughs> I would love you to talk about since you were so struck by the energy. Um, we open with the like posses, the friends of our families. I mean, it's really like gangland, right? It feels like yeah. these are rival gang slash gangster mobsters guys totally which is like kind of perfect for the pop cultural moment of the mid 90s because you literally have tragically rappers killing each other uh mm -hmm. over sort of like emulating what's going on not even emulating like sometimes having a foot in what's going on by way of coastal gang warfare and so but in this case we get it in a much in a much different package you have these guys who don't like each other because their families don't like each other experience each other in a gas station <laughs> It's very Zoolander. <laughs> yes, exactly. One is we have Jamie Kennedy and redheaded Biff looking fellow on one side. And let's appreciate that. This is a Shakespeare movie. And it's like, who's in our first scene? Oh, you know, screams Jamie Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, John Leguizano, ling, ling, how do we say John's last name? Leg. Leg. Wiz. Wiz. Amo. John Leguizamo on the other looking great being awesome with a gun, angry and violent at each other, and are putting everyone around them at risk in an incredibly beautiful symbolic scene showing what happens when powerful people are just flexing at each other. And it's it's a big time. It's a big time. And that is how we open the movie. And that's like five minutes of the opening of the movie. And it's just guys whipping guns around at each other. The guns are called swords. Yes. So that's our workaround. That was a good workaround. I like that. I love it. Let me read to you. This is from our friend Wikipedia. Wikipedia.org. I have a long Baz quote. With Romeo and Juliet, what I wanted to do was to look at the way in which Shakespeare might make a movie of one of his plays if he was a director. How would he make it? We don't know a lot about Shakespeare, but we do know that he would make a movie movie, which, by the way, is the same thing Harry Styles said and everyone made fun of him, but it just goes to show that he's not dumb. Everyone's just jealous of him. It's true. To continue, Baz says, he was a player. We know about the Elizabethan stage and that he was playing for 3,000 drunken punters from the street sweeper to the Queen of England, and his competition was bear baiting and prostitution. So he was a relentless entertainer and a user of incredible devices and theatrical tricks to ultimately create something of meaning and to convey a story. That was what we wanted to do. Which I think really comes through and that it's, it is fun to think about like if Shakespeare were around today, it's, I don't know, I am one of those people of which there are many who just like loves Shakespeare as a historical character who we can kind of make up whatever we want about and imagining kind of, you know, that like these plays are like so bombastic and violent and over the top and like, you know, really quite bananas that it's counterproductive, I think, to think of them as something that shouldn't please us kind of in our dumbest core. Absolutely. I um, look, I'm against snobbery in any facet. Bless you. But this sort of <laughs> Shakespeare gatekeeping stuff that happens that, you know, there was criticism at the time that they weren't in iambic pentameter enough and all of this absolute rot like i'm a huge shakespeare fan i was in the shakespeare club at school i was a total uh -huh. nerd burger about it i was like <laughs> so into it i have played juliet in a big production of romeo and juliet i am with the shakespeare but what baz did was take essentially 
what the play was about and created something that was accessible. And I'm here for the access. And like there's a tiny portion of the play that's actually in the film. It's sort of the choice cuts. (laughs) But there is stuff that like is in the play that should not be in the film. In like the scene where they meet at the balcony, there's these beautiful lines like one that's really gorgeous. My bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have for both are infinite. That is a beautiful line and that is a batshit thing to say to someone you've just met. (laughs) (laughs) And it would not work in the context of today. So like I think what Baz has done is kind of magical. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I really also enjoy, I haven't seen Australia so I can't speak to this, but like I like that all of the movies that he's focused on, as far as I can tell, are like about entertainers or entertainment. Or in this case, the one movie where that's not the case, the primary character that you don't see pertaining to that wonderful quote that you just pulled up, Sarah, is that Shakespeare is a character in this movie. Like he's Mm. like, how would Shakespeare make the movie? And like, that Mm. is the character in the lens through which we're seeing it. And I really love that like you can feel that in his movies is like there's a clear appreciation Mm -hmm. for the art of entertainment and the reverence for doing that and that's pretty spectacular and yeah and that this you know the whole red curtain trilogy is like about kind of over the top theatricality and not attempting to imitate life because why on earth would you do that with a movie and so what's Romeo and Juliet about I'll tell you (laughs) we have this opening gunfight sword fight which kind of further exacerbates this long-standing feud it all feels very mobstery and also we have as papa capulet paul sorvino who i think is like tony montana coded in this totally and so the, the feud is further ignited and then we see and this also just delights me so the montagues are played by brian dennehy so good and christina pickles who so i and, and many of us know as Ross and Monica's mom. (laughs) She had to take a break from being Ross and Monica's mom to go do Romeo plus Juliet. So they're like, well, it's too bad, you know, that that escalated into a giant fire. And boy, that really got out of hand. But at least Romeo was too busy moping on the beach about that girl that doesn't like him back to get involved. And so they send Benvolio, who we opened the feud with, to go talk to him and Romeo's bummed because he's into Rosaline and she's over him. And so then his friend Mercutio shows up in fantastic drag, which I remember really loving when I first saw this when I was 13 or 14 and is like, come to the Capulet party and take some ecstasy, I guess, which I really like the way Leonardo DiCaprio takes ecstasy in this movie. He like sucks his whole finger like it's someone else's finger. And then he's by the aquarium and he looks up and there's Juliet. And this all happens to, I think we listen to the entirety of Kissing You, if that's what it's called, by Desiree. Mm-hmm. It's so how many kids lost their virginity to that song in the 90s. <laughs> Tens of thousands, I honestly want to say. Uh, at least a hundred of our listeners. In have. a truck, in a bunk bed, on yeah. the floor, on the beach. <laughs> that song is so good. Like, this soundtrack is so good. The soundtrack <laughs> blew my mind. The soundtrack was so incredible. And that I can't hear that song without seeing the fish tank. Mm-hmm. And I think because oh. we had such like a frenetic experience in this film up until this moment. And then we have everything calming down and we have that beautiful motif of the first time we see Juliet, um, she's in the water and and we're looking up at her face and the hair. And just before the fish tank, we have uh, Romeo doing that to clear his head and we see the same shot and then we see them through the water. And so much of the film is like dirty and hot and sweat And Mm -hmm. when they're together, we've got all of this water stuff that's like pure and cool and gorgeous. I love that. Which ties so well to the, there's a notorious bit on this show that's only notorious to me because it's stuck in my head where I didn't realize that the end of Titanic, that what we're seeing is them living in in essentially Titanic heaven. I think you and Carolyn had like debated this to some extent. (laughs) Well, she was like, they're in Titanic heaven. And she said it like it was such an official thing that I was like, (laughs) 
I don't. Yeah, it's a, it's an official thing in girl culture. I don't I don't know yeah. what Titanic heaven is, and so this movie ends in a Titanic heaven scenario because they die, and then we have them. So we have a blip of them kissing underwater, which is really lovely. And it's yeah. a, I didn't realize until just now that it's a callback to them meeting through the panes of water. I love that. Yeah, they're in Titanic heaven, Alex. I'm so happy you know about Titanic heaven now because it's such a useful concept. We also talked about that in in Splash. We did talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know every every episode, I'm like, that's a t-shirt idea, but we really need to make a Titanic Heaven t-shirt that just says Titanic Heaven. Or just like, <laughs> leave me alone, my boyfriend is in Titanic Heaven. <laughs> that's it. So yes, great slow-mo kiss. They meet around this fish tank. I totally agree about the effect of this movie being like, so frenetic and almost like, you know, fear and loathing in Verona-ish before yes. that when we have this sudden beautiful like just and the palette like the way the colors shift based on what the scene is doing like I really love like strong communication through color in a movie same and it also really reminds me of West Side Story and what they do with the dance at the gym where we're having like you know this very loud like exciting fun dance sequence and then it kind of slows down and everything blurs and we're in this moment of privacy that is kind of created around these two people, regardless of what the rest of the world is like. And I love that it feels like it's kind of building on and taking cues from, you know, the world of adaptations of this play, which has such a storied life in terms of just the the amount of fingerprints on it from other creators. And so they meet, they kiss a little bit, they do some nice talking about kissing, which I've been hearing for so much of my life that it just <laughs> feels like as familiar as the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Well, palm to palm is holy palm is kiss, you guys. Beautiful. <laughs> right. You just and you hear that without knowing what it means in my case for a long time, but you're just like, it's got a good rhythm. It does. <laughs> like there's a music to the language that makes it pleasurable, even if you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And so they have this amazing meet cute. Meanwhile, John Leguizamo is Tybalt, as Alexi pointed out. He's Juliet's cousin, and he's a real hothead. And Juliet's parents are setting her up with bum 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 Paul Rudd, <laughs> who I always forget is in this movie. And also, this is a costume party, which is how Romeo is able to get in. And Paul Rudd is dressed like an astronaut. It's so good. It's and Paul so Rudd's good. name is Dave Paris. He is a dorky <laughs> delight in this film. I just have to say, in hindsight, in terms of like aging gracefully and oh God, unproblematically, yeah. Maybe mom and dad had the right idea. (laughs) It's such a great point. Yeah. So Juliet's being set up with astronaut Dave Paris. Alex, you were like, you called him Dave Frank at one point before we got on, which I really love. (laughs) Because I was asking if when she goes to meet him in the friar, dressed like Emily in Paris with a (laughs) Mm -hmm. giant beret. I was like, is she dressed like that? Because his name is Dave Paris. Is she dressed like that? And it is that. But I got confused, as I always do, with any name that I just learned a minute ago Mm -hmm. and asked you if she went to go see him in that because his name was Dave French. (laughs) I love that. His name is French Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) You can see why I was confused. You can see why Julia wouldn't want to marry French Stewart. (laughs) So they meet at the party, they have this amazing moment, and then they separate and they both learn that their families are sworn enemies. Oh, no. And Romeo is heading out. But then he's like, no, I got to go do the balcony scene. So he goes and does the balcony (laughs) scene. And we all know that scene. Juliet and I actually did a podcast episode about how Juliet wouldn't have had a balcony in real life, nor would Shakespeare have known they existed. But theaters have balconies. So she's on a balcony. And they fall in the pool and they're like, let's get married. And it was so funny watching it this time because I was like, wouldn't it be amazing if Romeo woke up in the morning and was like, oh, my head, that's the last time I do ecstasy and go to a costume party. Wasn't there something I was supposed to do today? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to get a nice coffee. <laughs> oh and so they've planned on a wedding. Romeo goes to see his buddy. Pete Postlethwaite playing the priest, which is so fun. I feel like he's the person in this movie who seems the least overwhelmed. He's the best. I love his character. I love him. Look, he is the only one fully speaking in iambic pentameter. This guy is like 
comfy as in this world. And it, look, it works for the character so well, but he is at home for sure. Yeah, and he's so he's so fun to watch. And for people who didn't watch The Usual Suspects every day for two months when they were really depressed in their sophomore <laughs> year of college like I did, uh, he was having quite a mid-90s because Pete Postlethwaite always played Mr. Kobayashi. He was in... Um... In the name of the father, right? He was so, he was everywhere for a long time, mm, yeah. for a, like a decade and a half or more. And to your point, Melanie, yes, like he's the only one I feel like who maybe has had done Shakespeare before and was acting accordingly. And one of the fun things to know about almost everybody in this movie is it seems like maybe it's their first time performing Shakespeare and their various ways of making up for the fact that it's their first time, I think brings a special energy to the movie. I think so too. I think there's also people who, I can't say his last name, Harold who plays Mercutio. Mm. I feel like there's a mastery there in making it his own. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also whoever plays Benvolio, the cousin, even though it doesn't quite sit within. It's great. It's so good. I love it. I love anyone who's like fully owned it. But if you, you know, read the full play, that's who these characters are energetically. Tybalt specifically yeah. as well. So there was one reviewer that talked about how Leonardo and Claire Danes, it was less like they were masters of it and more like they were, you know, year eights reading poetry and learning it for the first time and there was something sort of real and endearing yeah. about that which i really loved yes agreed so yeah they're gonna get married this is the plan meanwhile mercutio and tybalt are you know kind of each family's resident hothead i would feel like the boy most likely to be murdered in a duel correct um in each case so their feud comes to a head. Romeo is there and Tybalt wants to duel him. And Romeo is like, I love you, man. And Tybalt's like, what the fuck's going on? And Romeo's like, I really love you, man. I can't tell you why, but I do. And that doesn't work. And then how did things go down with Mercutio? So he says vile, dishonorable submission. Pretty much, what are you doing submitting? And then he goes for Tybalt. Mm -hmm. He goes hard for Tybalt. And then Romeo gets in the way and Tybalt accidentally gets stabbed. Mm. Mrs. Romeo stabs Mercutio. So it's, it's an accident. Tybalt's trying to get Romeo. And because Romeo had come in between, he stabs him. Which is like what's hinted at at the beginning of the movie, right? Is like you essentially just like have these warring factions and at some point they're going to accidentally take down the wrong person. And that's when he curses both houses. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. like, you both suck. <laughs> You're both going down. <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> yeah. And so it's also Romeo and Juliet's wedding. Hooray. They got married first, right? And then he's in his wedding suit when he has to yeah. have a giant duel with everybody. That's right. And we have the nurse, Miriam Margulies, is Lucy, uh, who has been helping them acting as a go-between. And so then it's like, after the wedding, it's like, all right, Juliet, the good news is you're married. The bad news is your husband just killed your cousin. <laughs> and she just decides, you know, well, nah, you just got to move on. Look, you know, it is one point where having such massive chunks of text cut out does kind yeah. of have a moment of going, oh, wow, she got real okay with that real quick. <laughs> I, I So I don't really remember what, you know, what happens in the parts that got excised here, but I was thinking about how, again, like in West Side Story, I think there's a song called A Boy Like That or I Have a Love, but it's Maria's song about like, no, I love Tony, even though he did in fact murder my brother and my best friend's boyfriend and it's great that women who love men who have recently committed murder have a big broadway song to listen to <laughs> but it is like you know it, yeah you got to keep it to two hours but yeah there are some missing <laughs> moments it's a common enough i mean it and it shows up 
a lot. Like this is what gets, I think a lot of people think that what gets emulated a lot in the Romeo and Juliet in stories moving forward, especially in movies is the tragic love element. And it certainly is, but it's also like, I have to reconcile being with a killer. Like that's that's the thing that comes up a lot. Right. And the fact that like our love was destined to cause all of this violence because of which I, Alex, like you were saying, is to me so much more visible as an adult. I think when I was yeah. a teenager, I was like, yeah, yeah, feud, whatever. Get to the kissing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get to the kissing for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting how much, I don't know, women having to deal with the recklessness and mm. poor choices of men. Like if you really look at this story, the big arc is Juliet. She's the one who does all the coming-of-age stuff, the um, separating from her parents, the making the brave decision to take the, you know, like what we'll get to with the poison stuff, getting married, fallen in love. Romeo was obsessed with Rosalind like two seconds before and then meets <laughs> someone else and is obsessed with her. And he's like, let's just get married and then let's make lots of bad, like ill-advised decisions that he hasn't thought through. And she's just like rolling with each one of these like Mm -hmm. she's really the baller in this she's the one who's growing up so quickly she's the one who's been like sheltered by her family who has to make like stand up to her parents and make these huge choices by herself really so i think we see see a lot of that as well we see a lot of women in films having to deal with terrible choices made by men yeah yeah and you in just in talking about the growth of her coming of age like actually her her ability to get the people around her even if it's not going to happen to like slow down is really incredible like because he comes on to her at that party just kissing like he's like ready again and like he has he has like Rosalind in, in his head or because like that had just happened he's kind of a nuisance yeah, he's a pest. Like he comes on strong. Her dad, you know, like she doesn't want to she doesn't want to do the uh, arranged marriage. She speaks up to her father. She's able to leave the pool when things are about to get sexy for sure. Like her ability to be like this thing's moving fast, but I should probably like the only person who's going to moderate the speed of this is going to be me. Yeah. And he's like, slowing down is for grandmas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's incredibly admirable considering the size of the machine rolling over her. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of that, they have their one great night together. And then she's like, well, I guess you got to go because you've been <laughs> exiled as well. Um, and so she's like, well, I see you again. And he's like, for sure. And that's not the actual line. And then and then he goes to this like desert out of town where there's a bunch of sheep and he sits in a camper van and writes poems, which was certainly my dream of how I would spend my early 20s. <laughs> and then Juliet goes to Pete Postlethwaite and she's like, I have a cunning plan. What if I fake my own death until all of this like blows over and then like. I guess it's like everyone will be so happy to see me again that Ro- Romeo and I can just be together. They'll be like, oh, shit, we're so glad you're not dead. Or what's the plan? I think the plan is that they escape and then they come back and go, surprise, we're both here. And you guys will love us now because we're not dead. Uh, I think I think that kind of was the vibe. That's the flowers in the attic method for ingratiating yourself <laughs> with people who are mad at you. And, the, and yeah, and also we've had her dad basically negotiating with dave french about whether he's gonna marry her and then down to the day and then he's like you're gonna marry dave french and she's like with due respect no and he's like i have no daughter and it's like you've really got to leave yourself some room to go when you're negotiating you know what's interesting about the dave french piece is is this just struck me as usually when we have this dilemma where dad wants you to marry one person and you want to marry somebody else. Mm-hmm. The person your dad wants you to marry is always like a goon. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's always yeah. like kind of like a gross monster. And in this case, it's Dave French as portrayed by beautiful Paul Rudd, who I don't think has done anything wrong. He's just not the right person. And I that's like an incredible decision. It's also the same in the play. So the, the Dave French a la Paris is a noble and worthy and sweet and cute Dude. Yeah. And when nurse Miriam Margulies says, like, brush through them both, it's because she's like, you know, they're both hot and cute and <laughs> you you could be happy with either, really. Yeah. 
I feel like Dave is supposed to be like a JFK Jr. type in this. And I also, <laughs> yes, this it, it wasn't until the second time I watched this this time that I realized that the cover of the magazine he's on that looks exactly like Time magazine is called Timely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love, that. I love it. It's great. It's so lovely. I, this whole movie is like a giant dollhouse or something. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and so Juliet is like, this is my plan. Uh, I don't want to marry Dave French. I want to get back with my boyfriend, so I'm going to pretend to be dead for 20 hours, and then it's going to all work out. And Pete Postlethwaite is like, okay. And so he helps her with that, and then he sends a very important message to Romeo, which she obviously doesn't get, because where would Shakespeare be if not for people not getting the correct letter? And Romeo is like, I'm going to go lie down with Juliet, and I'm going to poison myself with poison I get from M. Emmett Walsh, who's in this. <laughs> M. Emmett Walsh is in this movie. He's so good. Such perfect casting. The private eye from Blood Simple. What does he say about poverty, Sarah? Oh, he's like, he's he agrees to take Romeo's money for the drug that's going to kill him because Romeo's appealing to his poverty. And he says, my poverty, not my will, consents. Which is... Uh, Old Billy Shakespeare certainly knew a thing or two. That's such oh, yeah. a great, great, great line. Agreed. Yeah. There's a reason we still like the guy. It's because <laughs> he's fun. Every line gives you something to think about. Not a lot of stuffing. Well, and I think that it, like, it hits a very real spot in your pleasure center to have a fairly complex situation summed up in like seven words. Oh my God, for sure. You're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I am going to say something that I feel like not many people are going to fight me on because this, our audience is mostly former tween girls, which is that <laughs> I think Baz Luhrmann has improved on Shakespeare and the way he handles Romeo going to Juliet's beautifully decked out with candles and neon, be still my heart, <laughs> crypt, where he goes to where her body is lying in state. And like, as he is preparing to take the fatal dose of poison, like her fingers are moving, her eyes are fluttering. She's like, truly looking very alive. You're like, oh my God, Romeo, like, could you take a noticing class? <laughs> and then like, as she's saying Romeo, he's like, taking the poison like a shot of Malort. <laughs> and then it's too late and they like kiss a little bit and then he dies. And then, you know, she follows him. And then we end with Miss Newscaster, the end, Radiohead. I could be wrong and this could just be my my fallible teenage memory. But I remember, I, I like one of my favorite activities, this explains a lot. One of my favorite activities when I was like 14, 15, 16 was hanging out with my friend Jessica and reading Seventeen magazine or all of the other ones that existed at that time. You wanted to learn about how horrible it is to be a girl always worrying about your tampon string hanging out at the very <laughs> moment your crush talks to you. All I read at that time, I feel like, was girl magazines and that was so formative. But I remember there being a lot of like fashion spreads inspired by that crypt. I'm sure it's a great crypt. And I was like, mixed message, everybody. Oh, no, I think there was bedroom makeovers for teenage yeah. girls, highly influenced. I once set my bedspread on fire because I had so many candles. <laughs> Very inspired. The only uh, posters I ever had on my wall was one Romeo and Juliet and next to it was a pre-Raphaelite exhibition on love and death. I think it was like Amazing. Lady of Shalott. If you want to know what kid I was. So yes, very influenced <laughs> by this. That's so great. What What is the Lady of Shalott's deal, by the way? Uh, she was trapped in a tower and she was not allowed to look out and she had to only see three things through her mirror as she weaved. There she weaves by night and day a magic work, a web of colours gay. Mm. And then she turns around and sees Lancelot and uh, the curse is put on her. And mm. she dies and she goes and floats down, down this river in this boat. And so John William Waterhouse and lots of other people painted her and, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that also reminds me of like this very interesting death drive of the teenage girl and not even in terms of like the depressed teenage girl, but just like in my experience, teenage girls are very drawn to the aesthetic sometimes of like, boy, I would be a pretty dead body. You know, 1000%. And maybe it's because we recognize that that's where all our power is. <laughs> I remember it was around 
around all this Romeo and Juliet discovery time was also a music discovery time for me. My dad had gone to the library and obviously some very cool librarian had recommended some CDs for me and my older sister. <laughs> so it was like Björk Post... Oh, wow. Erica Badu Baduism wow, wow, and Who wow, 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 wow. Said Dummy. And I Holy remember shit. <laughs> it was like 11 and on holidays and I had this tape cassette with a CD player and I was in this pool and it was all stars and I was listening to Porter Said Dummy. I was like, this is what I feel like inside my body. But there was this <laughs> sense of like, oh, if I was like dead in this pool yeah. now, the romance of that while you're listening mm. to like... Porter said Rhodes was very alluring. Yeah. I think that it would be good for like 10th grade girls to take a mandatory like volunteering at the morgue thing <laughs> where they see like how unattractive they'll be in in a mere few hours. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Lividity is only the beginning. <laughs> It's funny because like I feel like that death drive operates also in the teen boy in that all I can rem- not in the same way. I think it's a very it's sort of a very different the appeal is very different. It's there for di- very different reasons. But the amount of things I remember either doing or knowing my my teen boy friends did that mm-hmm. either landed them close to dead or actually dead because yeah. you're a teen boy and you don't you know you you truly believe that you're invincible mm-hmm. you know it's a flirtation with death until at least 22 you believe you're invincible and you also have a genuine desire to put a firework on your head and <laughs> you're like that would be good right and i think we see that in this film like both yes. yeah. sort of sides of that yes agreed what did, he says something I, I had noted it and then I didn't write it down. So I don't know why I'm bringing it up. But it's the what he says to her when he believes that she's dead. And I can't remember the line, but he says something along the lines of like it, it, it like appears that like death is in love with you is essentially the result of the line. Oh, yeah. Which teenage girls everywhere flip their hair and are like, I know. Oh my god. Yeah, I think that this is, you know, that this is quintessential and age-old and something that gets repeated so often because you know, outside of the dramatic elements and outside of it just like existing in canon. And to your point, Sarah, about it being taking place over the course of four days, at least in this in this portrayal, there's nothing more like early to new teen than everything that happens in here is like mm-hmm. you something goes from zero to not even 60 but zero to to a million in four days you feel like it's life or death consequence your parents are fucking furious mm-hmm. uh everyone is angry and upset with each other like you don't know why people are angry and upset but you know that it impacts you in one way or another like this is an extremely accurate portrayal of what it's like to be a teenager I say this a lot on the show, but I love media that treats teenagers and the intensity with which they live their lives with dignity. I think partly because it to feel that way, you have to have some memory or enough memory and empathy to be like, I know that I miss when my knees didn't feel like this, but I also know <laughs> that teenagers aren't acting like this on purpose. They act like this because to have teenage emotions is like being carried around by a falcon all day long you can't tell a falcon where to go (laughs) to this point like this is what i was talking about like about what resonated then versus what resonates now is like you realize that you know romeo and juliet is about obviously it's about romeo and juliet but it's also about just like being in the middle of like a seemingly unmovable power structure yes and that's extremely what being a kid is like. that's extremely what being a citizen is like yeah, <laughs> that's my extremely God. what being yeah. a kid is like that's what being you know any just you're one of something that is what that is like i want a staging of this that's like meant to resemble 90s like political beltway stuff and it's about <laughs> james carville and mary madeline yes please <laughs> one thing that hit me this re-watching was i really love that they didn't do a trying to smooth over all these young men's faces i could see like yeah. blemishes and like messy and that very baby uh jesse bradford as balbazar and there was something very teen over even though a lot of them weren't teens and also um the poverty (laughs) over my head completely but the absolute 
rancor that these two families were causing this town that was Mm -hmm. obviously like this place it's you know there's a disparity in wealth that's really clear all of these like Mm -hmm. much bigger social pictures sort of hit me in this watch that obviously when I saw it at 12 was not interesting or did not hit me at all totally and I I find it I mean that this movie is so beautiful and I feel like a lot of the beauty you know comes from from art direction but also the fact that most of it was shot in Mexico Mm. and that you know the light and Mm. the locations just give it so much of what it has to offer and also that it feels like it is so interesting and also I think one of the only convincing ways you could tell this story to tell it as a story of like a city that's basically controlled by rival crime families and the fact of, you know, yeah, that these teenagers fall in love and have to deal with this mechanism of violence that was set in place long before they came along. And also that no one can remember or bothers to mention why, because it just doesn't really matter. It's just like Mm. how things have always been. And that, yeah, that like the random casualties of that, that we have to look at, you know, the destruction that, falls on a city uh, in addition to the characters that we're looking at, which is something you can do with a movie that you really can't do with a play to nearly the same extent. Totally. It's like when you watch an action movie and they they drive the car through the fruit stand and when you first watch it, you're like, yeah, this is amazing. And then you're like, oh, my God, that's a small business that's being ruined. <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, just think about, like, how... I mean, truly, I, this isn't even meant to be flip, even though it's so on the nose for like who is, you know, who gets attention these days is like, like, think about like how many people like actually suffer because like Elon Musk's having a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. That's just because a moody dum dum can't sort his shit out. Like, that's what happens. And like, you know, this is that same tale, which is like, Two families probably like four generations ago decided they don't like each other. We can't even remember why, but that's the rules that they live by. And as a result, there's so much collateral damage. So there's shootouts at gas stations. Mercutio gets stabbed for no reason. Like that's that's where we're at. Like it's just the collateral damage from moody people being moody. (laughs) And I think on a micro scale, that can feel like being a teenager in a family where you've got no control. Mm -hmm. And you've got no control of your hormones and you've got no agency because you're a kid, but then you're not a little kid anymore. I think all of that comes into it. And I think what's wonderful about watching this in film is you have two actors. Um, Claire James was 17 and Leonardo was 21, I think. So you wow. really get that energy. Like when you see Romeo and Juliet as a play, For Juliet particularly, there's sort of a golden moment to play her because Mm. you have to be skilled enough and have enough craft to be able to carry a Shakespeare, but then you also have to look young enough. And when I did it, it was like the flagship show of the season, so there was billboards, but they ended up being removed because there was complaints that it denoted pedophilia because people thought I looked too young. (laughs) I was 27 and I was older than the guy playing (laughs) Romeo. So, yeah. I was a good candidate for it, the stage, but it's wonderful watching it on screen so that you actually can get people closer to that age. It's really, I don't know, wonderful. Yeah. What do we think of the ending of this story and the way it gets represented in in different versions, including this one of like, well, the kids are dead, but it really made us think about how we need to slow down this giant feud we're having. And maybe there's a silver lining. Like, I feel like this movie behaves more pessimistically than the play. I love that it's a, a cop is like, you all are bad. Yeah. It's interesting because in the actual play, the line is uh, some are pardoned, some are punished. Mm. In this one, it was all are punished. Mm. And I I prefer this. It's like you all are going to have to deal with the consequences of, you know, this feud for generations. And this, this is the worst outcome. I think it's a, it's a harsher take. Yeah. The thing that's accomplished by that is um, there comes a time in you knowing that things in your immediate universe, once you start to have a little agency and power, there comes a time when you know that things are fucked up and that's fine. But just knowing that things are fucked up aren't a reason to let things keep being fucked up. Mm. And like, that's kind of what's being spoken to here where it's like, you guys need, I understand this has been going on forever. I get it. But people are dying. 
you need to get it together. It's no longer an excuse that this has just always been happening. Like you all, all of you have blood on your hands. It's like the perfect climate change analogy. Yeah. (laughs) It's time guys. (laughs) Right. Because like someday it won't just be a random bystander. It'll be your precious daughter or your precious son. Exactly. Right. I love how I, God, I love truly, truly love how dark this is at the end because again, this was like, the teen movie for a year, if not, well, then Titanic came up. Yes, it was the Leo era. It was like this, and then Titanic, and another movie where Leo dies <laughs> at the end. Oh my god, yeah. And before this, there was the Basketball Diaries, and that's the Leo crying like a baby boy trilogy. Yeah, where Leo writes poetry. Leo the artist. Oh yeah, coming back to the crying like a baby boy. <laughs> the scene where he finds out she's dead when she's not really dead and fortune fools it. The way he's sitting with his legs in a way that only a guy who is that young can sit (laughs) on the floor. There's something so, like, crumpled and plasticine and, I don't know, all in. Like, I remember, I got to the end of it this time, I'm like, he's 21. That performance, even if he's not, like, spot on with that text, he owns it in his own way. And then at the end, both of them, the way they go there, with Claire, with that, I feel like we hadn't seen a lot of girl ugly crying. Like, pretty girl ugly crying. Yes. Although we had seen it from her because she did it in Little Women. That's her thing. Oh my gosh, we did. And she did it in in, uh, My So-Called Life. Claire Danes owns ugly crying in the most beautiful way possible. And we love it. Incredible. She's in in shock and the ugly cry just kind of like burps out of her. Love it. Oh my goodness. And that, that ending, I agree. Like we all know the story. And it almost tricks you into thinking it could be different because of the way Baz orchestrated. And I agree, Sarah. I think it's mm-hmm. it's a improvement on the original. In the original, he like kills Paris in the crypt. It's it's dumb. It's not necessary. <laughs> yeah, and I I mean I think to me it only makes sense. And this is kind of an attitude toward creative work generally that I think has you know been up for debate, especially recently with fan culture being more present to normies who didn't used to <laughs> read Star Trek zines or anything, you know, because there was a period when you could avoid fandom stuff, but now you can't. Haha. And I feel like it only makes sense to treat Shakespeare's texts as like something you can play with and something you can, you know, shuffle around and treat as something living. Mm. And I think Shakespeare, my own personal Shakespeare, you know, it's like everyone has a personal Shakespeare, just like a personal Jesus. And my Shakespeare is like Of course. I wrote this in like two months. That is a good idea. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) I love the idea of a benevolent Shakespeare rather than a a judgmental, uh, strict, cruel God Shakespeare. (laughs) I agree, Sarah. I'll I'll also, to me, what what really works about the casting in this, and we kind of touched on this as we've gone along, but it, it feels to me that like everyone is cast for their ability to show up and do what they always do. And that's kind of the valence they bring to these characters. And so, like, like I love that Leonardo DiCaprio's delivery is the same as it is for anything else he did around this period. <laughs> like, he sounds very much like Jack and Titanic a lot of the time. And it feels like part yeah. of the brilliance of this is that Leonardo DiCaprio is just doing Leonardo DiCaprio, and that's what they hired him for. Totally. Absolutely. And that is, I think, the genius of this casting. I think Baz understood and knew this play so well, he found the archetypes in Mm. modernity Mm -hmm. and just let them be them because they were that character. They were that person. That's exactly. Yeah, that's I mean, and that's what I was saying with regard to like not being able to deliver lines, but what they brought was them. Right. Come as you are. Brian Dennehy is in this movie and he just nailed it. Oh, God, everyone nails it. Everyone nails it. Yeah, because that's who he is. He's a beleaguered crime dad in a tux. Yes, everyone brings the gravitas of who they always are, and that is excellent. Yeah, which is just such a great way to use your performers. Truly. And I feel like if you're, you know, 
it's fun to use movies as ways to think about how to approach a creative project. And one of the things that I love it when it comes up is like, you know, use what you have for what it is and like go with the flow to the extent that you can on a movie set. Yeah, for sure. Very well said. Absolutely. And then they've just built this world around, like, I think Catherine Martin is just astounding in terms of her mm-hmm. world building skills. The fabric of this is so maximalist and so rich, like Juliet's room, having all of those candles, but then like the dolls, all of that, yeah. that wall of dolls, which is like creepy and brilliant that she's moving from this like child child to woman child yeah melanie is there anything that you want to touch on that we haven't touched on yet before we ask the most important question of uh, 2023 not much just that like what this film did for hawaiian shirts was really amazing (laughs) and yeah so so much of of romeo and juliet really was some of the foundations for where i've gone in terms of taste even if, like, in some ways the story is is ridiculous in terms of the love story. It's really the the fabric of the whole thing that, that has, you know, stayed for me. That's so great. Well, Melanie, we have a question for you. And the question is this. We know that uh, Paul Sorvino plays a father in this movie. We know that Brian Dennehy also plays a father in this movie. Who, in your view, is the daddy of Romeo and Juliet? The daddy for me, it's Friar Lawrence. (laughs) (laughs) Look, he really does his best to try and look after everyone, but doesn't have like, you know, the actual difficult communication with the families that needs to happen. So I feel like that's real dad vibes. But also, (laughs) this is hilarious, I still in my life, when I have times where I feel things haven't gone my way or put upon or just having a sook about something, I will hear that part in the film where he's like, there art thou happy. It will be like, (laughs) you are loved by many people. There art thou happy. A pack of blessings light upon thy back. So it's pretty much my internal pull your head in. Your life's good, which still happens to me today. So he's definitely the daddy for me. Mm. Fabulous. I'm going to say Jesse Bradford, not for any reason for the portrayal of Balthazar or the character of Balthazar, but any time a um, actor who was featured in the 1995 classic Hackers comes up on screen, I can't not say to myself, he was in Hackers. He was in Hackers. He was in, there's a guy from Hackers. I love Hackers so much. Why haven't we done Hackers yet? It's shocking, Sarah. It's shocking that we haven't done it. Um, Sarah Marshall, mm-hmm. who's your daddy? I think my daddy has to be Claire Danes because my understanding, and I assume the understanding of anyone else roughly my age in the 90s, was that Claire Danes was like this very special person who actually got to play teenagers of her own age, which mm. you don't see that much for a lot of true. very good reasons. So true. Yeah. <laughs> but she was, I don't know, I, I like looked up to her as an artist, I think, from being like a tween, tweenager because... She felt to me like someone who I recognize so much as a fellow teenage girl, but who had so much artistry and who seemed like she took what she was doing very seriously um, and who played teenage characters that I feel like did a lot to humanize teenagers. And it's also, you know, she's I love that she's been able to stay in the game and keep growing as an artist. And also that if she like didn't do another thing ever she would still have contributed among so many other things my so-called life which I feel like (laughs) has given so many people a sense of recognition and consoled them through teenage times and adult reminiscing about teenage times and yeah I just think she's so great and I love that she had this role and I feel like did a really wonderful job with it I love her thank you Juliet yeah I so agree there's this beautiful story about her casting that they'd looked at so many people after I think they had Natalie Portman first but she was too young against Leo and when she came and worked in this audition she wasn't trying to put on a Juliet or be sweet or flirty or anything she they said she was just straight looking in his eyes and just there and herself which is astounding for a teenager Mm -hmm. like so mature so I agree that's a great daddy Sarah. Ah, 
Yeah. Melanie, thank you. This is just an absolute delight. And uh, to Sarah's point earlier, let's not wait two years until the next time happens. Let's not. It's been a joy, you guys. Ah, this was so good. Thank you for everything. Thanks. All right. That's it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Melanie Zanetti for being on the show and talking with us about this fine film. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and editing the episode. Thanks to Miranda Zickler also for editing the episode. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. Thank you for listening. Thanks for finding us on social. You are good pod on Instagram and Twitter. You are good on Blue Sky and who knows where we'll be next. Find us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions where uh, you can find so many bonus episodes if you are all caught up here and looking for more to listen to. Don't forget to look in the archives. Often people will be like, hey, you should cover Saw. Guess what? We covered Saw. We covered seven Saw movies in one episode with Jamel Bowie. Hey, you should do Jaws. Jaws was our first episode. We have a rich and robust back catalog. If you're new to the show, check it out. We used to be called Why Are Dads? And so that's how we would examine the film. So there's a bunch of movies from that time. There's a bunch of movies from this time. Check it out. Check it out. Get into the back catalog. And when you are caught up, find us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions so that you can hear those bonus episodes. All right. I think that's all uh, we need to do for right now. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate you. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Good.